Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Conference of Champions, it deserves its own show, especially in basketball. That's why I am working alongside the phenomenal floor general from Oregon State, Wall former, and the man that can still throw down dumps, Ahmad Starks. Ahmad, nice to uh, nice to see you again today. Look at you. You had a little had a little bounce in the step today. Nice seeing you again, Mike. Yeah, today uh, I got to play against some of my pros. Um, so I was a little warmed up. So hey, I thought I I'd give it a run. It took me a couple chances, but I I got me a dunk in a day, so I was hyped, man. Uh, happy to be back on the show. Well, man, it looked effortless, I'm telling you. So you still, you're, you're sandbagging people if you're telling them you can't dunk anymore, but that's all right. But we are lucky enough to. I'm Michael Carrier, like you said, Sun Devil alum. Yes, uh, you can uh, hit us up on Twitter at ASTARKS3 or at Diablos00. But we are lucky enough to be joined today by a man that's covered, well, the Sun Devils in general for 17 years now, but Chris Cartman who is the publisher of Sun Devil Source. He also had the Pac-12 preview for what's going to happen this year in hoops for Athlon Sports. And we are happy to have him on. We've crossed paths, obviously, throughout the years. So he's come on, does great work, and uh, he's very knowledgeable. And I tell him all the time when he's on my shows, he makes me smarter. So thanks for coming on, Chris. We, uh, we greatly appreciate this. You know, Michael, I'm always uh, willing to hop on and talk some Pac-12 sports with you, man. Well, they don't get enough respect throughout the country, and I know everybody loves to have their debates, and Ahmad and I have joked around. Every conference, you know, says they're the best, and um, I know before we started, I was talking to you about my top 12 coaches. Ahmad and I did a top five guards of all time, too, in the conference. Now, that show, I mean, literally, like, we talked about it, and for five and a half days, I was looking at guard. Honestly, I wanted to vomit of the guards that I had that I left off the list. If you go through guards in this conference, as you know, Chris, it's it's unbelievable. Not that all the other player other players aren't, but uh, yeah, we came up with a, a starting five guards, and then we also, to, you know, me, I'm a waffler. I had to have three on the bench, so technically it was eight, but we had a starting five and three on the bench. So it's uh, like I said, we're having a lot of fun with the show, and Ahmad, he's a floor general, so he can uh, he can uh, speak to a lot a lot more of it than I can. But uh, yes, the Pac-12 needs more respect. I'm interested to see Chris's take on you know, like what he thinks about the guards of the past. And then obviously we'll touch base on But I would, Chris, what is like, who are some of your favorite guards like coming through the, through the conference in the time you've been around? Um, if you just like look at like 
recent history, I would say, I mean, Arizona has always had like the best guards, right? Like in my opinion. I always say that and Mike gets mad at me when I bring up, when I bring that up. But anyway. Hold on, Chris. I don't get mad. I say it's very hard for me to be complimentary, as you know, Chris, but I am very complimentary to Arizona guards. If you go back to like the, the peak sort of loot years, uh, I mean, it was just one All-American after another, right? I, Jason Terry was one of my favorites, the, the Stoudemires. Uh, you look at, you know, uh, um, Mike Bibby was a tremendous uh, uh, guard. And uh, that's just like a few of them. Obviously, they had like so many guys there. I think like Luke Ridnour was like one of my favorite guys to watch. And Peyton Pritchard, I think, uh, an all-timer. Uh, for what he was able to do at Oregon over the years. Uh, if you go back, like, even, like, a lot further, I remember, like, Harold Miner at USC and how, like, awesome that he was. Uh, I think everybody, like, knows James Harden at ASU two years. That was, that was pretty good. Um, there's so many. Washington's had a bunch of great guards over the years, right? So, I don't know. You go, you go I mean, Gary Payton, he has to be at the top of the list with – with Jason Kidd, right? That's what everybody would probably say, I would imagine. Uh, and then after that, I don't know. Like, it seems like between some of the guys who have been at UCLA and Arizona and, uh, you know, a couple of these other guys that we mentioned, it, it probably gets a little bit tougher from there. And, and do you factor in NBA careers or not? What do you guys think about that? Like, should that matter or not so much? I think we tried not to. Um, I think we just left it as, as college. But obviously, it's hard not to throw in anything like that because we threw in Harold Minor, um, obviously, so stellar. So not like the greatest pro career. Right, right. Not to say bad, but obviously not a Jason Kidd. But like his college numbers just read. Like the, what he did in college was just amazing. So had to have him here. I think we both had him around like two or three or like three or something like that. Yeah, we, we both had uh, Gary Payton at number one, uh, Chris. And then I, you're right, because I had uh, Gary Payton. I also, I went back and I went with Gail Goodrich, because you're talking about going back in time. What Gail Goodrich did was insane. When I was reading Amada's numbers, like he led UCLA to their first national title. They were 30 and 0. And he, I mean, his, but it, like I said, it was hard when I was reading, doing research, not to look at the NBA career, but what he did in college spoke volumes too. So I had, um, Peyton, Goodrich, Kidd, Harold Miner, and uh, Mike Bibby. And then I had Clay Thompson um, on the bench with uh, Brevin Knight, uh, James Harden as well. Yeah, it's, it's it, I mean, you guys put me kind of on the spot with it. I'd have to really think about it, obviously, right? Because there's so many years, and then you have to go back to like de literally decades before you were even alive. To, and so, that kind of makes it tough. And you, and then you got like the, you know, how you sort of view it in terms of longevity versus significance of impact for guys who only were there for two or three years, example, more, more recent years or whatever. But it's an interesting conversation for sure. And the last thing too about Harden, because I was telling, when I told Ahmad this on the show, I knew that he led the pack in scoring both his years, Chris, but I didn't realize he led the pack in steals both those years too. So I mean, it, again, you can't go wrong. And we also did, it's funny because you say Mike Bibby and with Gail Goodrich at UCLA, I mean, Henry Bibby won three straight national titles at UCLA. Then his rookie year with the Knicks, Chris, he won another, he won a championship. So four straight titles for Henry Bibby. And it's just like, yeah, no, it was, it was a fun show to have. Uh, the prep that went into it. And like, I thought, when I, when I go, I'm like, look, we got to have three on the bench. I'm like, I'll just take credit for being the waffler because I can't just do five. Like there's got to be somebody to come in and, yeah, I mean, he, so, but yeah, no, it, it's interesting. But I mean, speaking of these teams and interesting, let's, let's kind of, let's kind of jump into it. I mean, Ahmad and I had talked, you know, how obviously everything going on with the virus and, you know, how it affected recruiting and kids taking virtual tours. Um, but in the conference, I mean, ASU obviously got some pretty, pretty solid top commits come in uh, as we know, but around the conference, uh, I mean, U of A, everyone like Colorado too, seemingly Utah, I mean, seemingly, a lot of uh, talent coming into the conference. So you, uh, you, you rank the, uh, you rank the conference. So what are your thoughts on the incoming classes? Uh, very interesting in terms of how schools kind of recruited. Um, 
what we've seen what we've seen really in recent years is so many more transfers and so many more one and done guys and what's happened as a result of that is the secondary market of kids changing programs or coming from overseas or or what what have you in like april may june has is uh, significantly more than what used to be the case it used to be that most guys they signed in the early signing period in november things kind of got locked up and then there was a smaller sort of number of, of high school guys and others who waited until april and then they signed and then there wasn't as much activity after that this is now really significantly changed um and what what's happened is is that the uh, coaches they they they're having to replace five, six, seven guys every year out of 13 scholarships, which is really, really hard. And you almost, almost can't do it with high school prospects. So what we've seen is this year, for example, you look at uh, Sean Miller lost his, his three guys after one and done years to the NBA, decided that he was going to go really heavy internationally. Uh, they had some challenges getting some of the top high school talent. I think that was some some after effects of some of the, the questions about what kind of happened there with some of the NCAA investigations and whatnot. Um, so his roster is a bunch of guys that are, are not really known, uh, but still could be really good players. And, and uh, I think he has somebody from Mexico as well. And then you look at USC, uh, they, they signed um, one of the top NBA prospects in the country, in the class, and Evan Mobley is a seven-footer who can face the basket and is tremendously skilled and runs like a gazelle. Uh, but And what they did to try to, to surround him with talent is they took three graduate transfers from low to mid-major programs who were all really effective, mostly uh, in the front court, uh, um, to sort of, you know, give them the maximum opportunity that they had in the one year with Mobley and his brother, who was a freshman last year uh, at USC to sort of uh, elevate what they are. And then you look at uh, UCLA, they got the Kentucky transfer, uh, Jazang, who I think is going to, uh, he got uh, the waiver to play immediately, which a lot of kids are getting because of COVID. Holland Woods at, at ASU actually just got his waiver as we're recording this right now today in the last couple hours. Um, I think he probably is going to end up redshirting just because of the, the talent that they have. But, um, and then Oregon has, uh, has uh, taken some veteran transfer types of guys that they're trying to pair with their roster. Uh, Stanford uh, is not a team that takes a lot of transfers, right? So they have like four or five high school kids, including one of the highest rated uh, uh, in, of any Pac-12 uh, signee. Uh, who's a, a wing forward who I think is going to make a big impact. Uh, and ASU, of course, got the really super highly uh, talented duo of Josh Christopher and Marcus Bagley. That's the highest rated uh, duo that ASU's ever signed in any class um, since you really had any of these internet sites like the last 20 years, I would say. Christopher's the highest rated guy, even higher than James Harden was, who's now number two uh, um, all time. And obviously, Harden was probably you know, should have been a top five guy, but he was more like 15 or 13 or something like that. And uh, Bagley is inside the top 30. So uh, ASU had a really great class. I think that it's going to be kind of, you know, we, the, the industry I sh is kind of what I mean by we, we, tr we really follow and cover the high school kids in the States a lot more than we do internationally, but because there's so many uh, division one transfers from smaller schools that are largely somewhat unknown and also players from overseas, it makes sort of projecting how they're going to impact the roster uh, more difficult than in years past. And so that's also something that uh, I'm interested in kind of seeing how it evolves. When we split it up real quick, I mean, let's start with, with the North. I mean, for your preview, what do you see out of the North? I mean, Oregon, like you said, I mean, losing Peyton Pritchard, Dana Altman, I mean, been there since 2010, has done a very solid job with the Ducks. I know Ahmad and I also looked at the way too early top 25s that are already out, and Oregon um, was listed in a few of those. ASU as well. UCLA was right there. Arizona was in one. 
Um, but with the North, I mean, how do you see the North shaping up? We, we don't, I mean, the, the, the standings are, you know, just combined. So we don't, I don't really look at it personally in terms of North South, What I would say is that Oregon is, I think clearly the, the top team, uh, even, even losing Peyton Pritchard, uh, from the Pacific Northwest and one of the top three teams in the conference. I think most, most people are going to have, uh, in some order, ASU, UCLA, and Oregon. I personally have UCLA one, ASU two, Oregon three. Uh, the questions about ASU and Oregon are both kind of the same. They are, uh, even, even though Oregon lost its best player, they return Chris Duarte and Will Richardson, who are both really good, uh, you know, guards. I mean, those guys were impact players last year. And then they add uh, Amari Hardy from UNLV as a, a transfer, graduate transfer. So he's able to play right away. He averaged 14.5 points last year. But the questions are the same, really, for ASU and Oregon, which is how much potency do they have up front uh, in the front court, of course. You know, uh, uh, I think Oregon has athleticism, but they don't have as much skill, post-scoring, the ability to kind of open up the floor in that kind of way, get easy buckets by dumping it inside. ASU losing Romello White, that's the same exact question that they're going to have and how much Jalen Graham is going to be able to stand up, elevate his game, I should say. And UCLA, to me, has the fewest question marks about their game. I don't love Tyga Campbell as a point guard, but when you pair him with Chris Smith, and then you also have all their other players who are returning, uh, they have the most returning in the front court uh, with Hill and um, Jaime Jaquez. And then they, have, they get uh, Juzang, as I said earlier. I think that they have the most depth. They have the fewest questions. And that's why I kind of like them. Remember, that Mick Cronin last year, they were dragging their feet at embracing his style of play, the really defensive, heavy, lunch pail type of thing. I thought that they might lose players, uh, maybe even like turn on them, have like a mutiny or something. But then they got it together. They won 11 of their last 13 games. And even though Oregon won the league, I think UCLA was probably overall playing the best basketball uh, in the last couple of weeks of February and then into March. So those are kind of my three top teams in some order. After that, I think it gets a little bit tougher, but I think it's Stanford, USC, and Arizona in some order. Um, Stanford returns Oscar De Silva. I think he's a, he's a, he was a first team all-conference player last year. They have 10 in the Pac-12. Um, they, they, their biggest hit was uh, uh, Tyrell Terry, was a one-and-done guy. Uh, the first ever actually at Stanford. So that, that was big, but they get Zaire Williams. That was the, that's the five-star kid that I mentioned earlier, who's an impact guy. And uh, I think uh, with, with Dejon Davis coming back as a point guard, they're probably about as deep and as solid as, as Stanford's been. I think Jared Haas has done a good job coaching Stanford. USC, I mentioned kind of earlier, their, their situation with Mobley and then getting the three uh, impact, potentially impact uh, uh, grad transfers. And then I said Arizona's got five, I think five European players uh, coming in, which is crazy because I don't think that's ever happened at any school before. And then after that, you have the second, the, the second half of the conference. Well, let me, let me ask you this real quick before Mod gets to you, because I know he's got some too, but I said earlier that Colorado was kind of my wild card, just how they've always played, they've adapted to, you know, the style of the Pac-12, whatever, coming from the Big 12, but it's been a few years. But Tad Boyle, man, that guy is, I mean, you've seen it. I mean, his team's, his team's definitely battle. I know people say, oh, it sounds really cliche, but watching Colorado play, I mean, night in, night out, the, to me, they never seem out of a game. I said that they were the wild card. They could either be below the top-tier teams, like you said, or they could give the top-tier teams a run for their money or maybe pull something off. Where, where do you have Colorado slotted? Yeah, so I have Colorado seventh, and I, I – and... The, the, the thing about the Buffaloes is last year, I expected they'd be better. In fact, I thought they might win the league last year because when you have McKinley Wright, uh, one of the best backcourt players in the league two seasons ago, he did that with a torn labrum that he had surgically repaired. So I thought, okay, they had McKinley Wright back. 
They have the they have Tyler Bay, you know, jump out the gym, great defensive player, shot blocker as a forward. Lucas Seawert, um, who's like a, 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 a you know stretch five man almost. I thought they had really good pieces and synergy, and I agree that Boyle has done a good job coaching since they joined the league. But they underachieved really uh, last year, frustratingly so almost. And so then they lose Bay and they lose Stewart. And so the question now is, are they – and they had another, another kid uh, um, who's good leave. So my, the question is, is it going to gonna be enough surrounding McKinley Wright or does he sort of become like a guy who the, everybody just keys on and they, and they can't – and they just can't get enough – uh, at both ends um, to, to push up into being a top four or five team in the conference. That's sort of my concern there. I think I agree with you about, you know, Colorado thinking they could be, they could be up or down. I feel like it's always been that way from the jump um, just because also the advantage of, you know, their home court advantage, um, which that I feel like that plays a role regardless. So I think they can be iffy. Um, you just never know. I do one thing that stood out to me was um, honestly, I keep telling, I keep telling Mike that I really like Arizona State. Um, I really do, and obviously they got some young pieces that are supposed to be good. So, you know, not everyone comes and comes in and dominates right away like James Harden. Like sometimes you have an adjustment period um, just because of one, it could be that a new system. Two, it could be now you're playing against grown men. It just happens that way. So we don't know how everything's going to fill out, especially with the younger guys. But I do like them a lot. And there, there was an adjustment phase, right? Because Alonzo Verge comes in. He's a ball-dominant guy. And he's trying to mesh with Remy Martin, who's a ball-dominant guy. And it, it took a while, Ahmad, for those guys to figure it out. Like what you know, like from getting on the same page with guards, having that sort of feel, chemistry, and, and rhythm, is, is, this doesn't just naturally happen. You have to actually play together for a while. Exactly. So, you know, they could be on paper. That's really good with Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, and Josh Christopher. That looks amazing. Plus, Bagley, but it has to click. And so I don't know, you know, with, I don't know, with COVID and everything like that. I know the workouts, I don't know how the workouts have been tailored or how everything's going on, but different times. So it's somehow they're going to have to find a way to make things click um, to get that off. But if, if they do, if, let's say everyone in the conference, it's gelling. They found their. They found a way to click. I think Arizona State wins it. I think Arizona State has has the best chance to do that. Yeah, their guard. The guard play is is really potent, right? I mean, Remy Martin is the leading returning scorer in the conference. Alonzo Verge, I think, is seventh leading returning scorer in the conference, and he came off the bench for the most part last year. He was the leading scorer off the bench in all NCAA, uh, over sixteen points. So you like, and we know like o over the history of college basketball, when you have senior veteran guards, that's, that takes you places. That's, that's, those are the teams that, that make runs in tournament play when they have that. And the PAC 12, it's just the way that, you know, the game has sort of evolved and there's not as many big men. There's not as much of a post game. And this, the conference this year in particular is going to be super guard heavy. So that also sort of helps ASU in terms of how they stack up against the other best teams. Because I don't really think that that's going to be a problem for them against uh, most of these teams. You know, um, it could be for UCLA potentially. And that, that's why I kind of like UCLA because I think that they can match up against different types of teams. But yeah, I think... My, my consideration was who's first between UCLA and, and ASU. That's where I was at mentally. Well, let me ask you this, too, with the guards. When you talk about Remy Martin, I mean, surprise with Remy Martin at ASU and then obviously Nico Mannion because, I mean, he reclassified, as you know. So, I mean, he is a really, really young one and done. He reclassified in high school at Pinnacles, what I mean to tell our, our listeners here. But – were you surprised that he stuck with going in the NBA draft? And the other side of that, surprised that – that because when Amon and I were talking about it, but surprised that Remy did come back? You know what? So Remy, not surprised. Um, he was not likely to be drafted. In fact, he wasn't even among the 100 – I think it was 105 
uh, combine invitees. So, you know, and then when you have the, the COVID year, that's kind of random. Nobody knows what to, what to expect. Might not be able to go play overseas in the same way. So I think that's a consideration. The teams, the, 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 the front offices at the NBA said they wanted to see better uh, three-point shooting consistency and then uh, floor general, generalship. So I think he's trying to focus on those things. With Mannion, it's like, look, if you're, if you're forecast to be a first-round pick now, you, you probably should go. I mean, that just makes sense. And I think with a guy like that, you run the risk of pigeonholing yourself if you don't make a pretty good step forward in terms of progress in how NBA teams perceive you. So if he comes back and then Arizona still doesn't really, uh, really grind and, and make forward progress, then people start to go, is Nico Mannion a leader? You know, what are the holes in his game? Are, you know, is that, is that look like they're not improving? They start picking your game apart. That's it. That's exactly it. And that, and you, so he doesn't, you don't have that as much if you're only there one year, right? Or even if you're like, it's really, yeah, if you're one year, that's great. Uh, but even if it's like your junior, senior year, like when you really take off, that one year where you take off and you get all the hype and everything, you want to run with it. If you're projected to get picked, you want to go with it. And I've seen that time and time again. I experienced that with one of my, one of my players when I, was in, when I was playing with Jared Cunningham. Um, he had a really great sophomore year, and then he came back to dominate his junior year which is my sophomore year, and he was like, no, I'm gone. Like, I was asking if he's going to come back senior year, and he was like, I'm gone. Like, he rode the hype. And if he came back, they would just want him to be a point guard, which wasn't going to happen because I was there. Funny story about him, by the way. He, you know, he was committed to ASU before Oregon State. Yeah, he was. He was. I, I knew that. And he actually, ASU kind of made a mistake and dropped him because they didn't see, you know, certain things about his academic situation and his progress of his game. And they really regretted that because he turned out to be a baller. I'm sure he was. And they also went, chose to give that, oh, and I won't say give that to, but they also, you know, went with a guy, Demetrius Walker. Yes. At that time, who was, when, as a kid, he was everything. Eighth grade freshman year, he was like a, a number one type of a dude in the class, freaking nature, right? He was everything. I played against him in, I was probably in sixth grade, he was in seventh, and he was, it was unreal at that time. But then he didn't continue to progress through the rest of his career after being, after 14, 15 years old. No, exactly. Where Jared kept getting better, uh, the jump shot got better, his understanding of the game got better. He became a defensive, you know, a defensive juggernaut as well. So just like James Harden, Mike, he led this, the league in scoring and steals. Yeah. Um, and, to, and was not player of the year, maybe because we didn't finish as high as we should have. But that still takes a, you need a, that takes a great player to do that. Um, so he didn't want to come back because his game would have got picked apart. So he wrote it. He winds up being, I believe, number 24 for picking the draft that year. And so it was the right move for him. But just to the point, don't come back. If you right, you have the hype, you have a great year, and it's hard for you to think about it, it's hard to top that great year. If, if that's your situation, you've got to go. No brainer. And Ahmad, don't, don't you think that if there had been a full postseason, that some of these things would have been different, right? Because some guys, they would have shined on the biggest stage and, and other guys maybe wouldn't have. And so that would have affected what some guys decided to do. No, 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 no doubt about it. I think that postseason would make or break certain situations um, because some guys maybe would have had a big tournament and say, yeah, I'm out. Or, you know, if basketball was normal, I think there's a lot of guys in this conference and outside of it that would have been gone. Or it, have been, or it would have been an easy I'm staying, you know, as well. Yeah, because, Chris, we talked about, too, of the guys that come back, not just in the Pac-12. I mean, we did talk about – players that came back, but just all across college basketball, a day after day, and they're saying, oh, they're, they're pulling out of the NBA draft, they're coming back. I know our season of mod because he finished up at Illinois, but Illinois, I mean, they got quite a few players back too. So that's why, as we look forward to, well, before we talk about not having 
I guess, uh, an out-of-conference schedule and season. And some of the big games, Amon and I touched on them last week, Chris. But with the games that were scheduled, where how did you see in just in general the pack? I guess measuring up to other conferences because I mean there are some pretty big games, some pretty awesome tournaments, and uh, I, I'm just but we Amon and I were both bums. We're not going to see UCLA, Kentucky, Kansas coming to the Wooden Classic this year, USC playing Gonzaga, Arizona playing Gonzaga. Um, but I mean, if those were to happen, where were your thoughts on where the pack measured up? Well, let's even go. Let's even go earlier than that because, as you guys know, uh, last year, uh, you know, two what would be two years ago uh, in terms of the tournament, the Pac-12 was terrible, right? Like the Pac-12 really underperformed, and people were like, you know, what's happening with the conference and all that. But then this year, it looked like the Pac-12 w- was was having a banner year and was probably going to get five or six teams into the NCAA tournament. And so, you know, I think it was frustrating for everybody involved to not be able to see what happened with UCLA peaking, Oregon with Peyton Pritchard, ASU with with, uh, playing very good basketball in February, and Arizona having all those, you know, those diaper dandies or whatever you want to call them, freshman guys, and then other teams also uh, uh, playing really well and having a chance to to make it into the postseason, um, so I, I think that's where you gotta kind of want to frame it. And then, but then what happens is because there's so much turnover now from one year to the next, and you know uh, Washington, even though it was at the bottom of the conference, loses its two best you know prospects to the NBA after one year. Arizona loses all these guys. Oregon loses its best player. Etc. It makes it difficult to sort of project um, exactly how competitive that some of these, even maybe the top tier teams, are going to be against other national programs. And that's why, Mike, that those November December games and tournaments are really good indicator. They're like a barometer for uh, you to kind of compare how these teams are actually going to look and measure up once they get you know, into conference play and then into the season. I I think it also needs to be said that Cal and Washington State were not doormats last year like they had been after coaching changes, right? Like Mark Fox is doing a pretty good job and they have Matt Bradley back who is one of the top scorers in the conference now. And then you look at Washington State and Kyle Smith, is you know he's like an eccentric type of a coach and even though they lost uh cj ellaby to the nba draft they got you know a volume score a microwave guy in isaac bonton he's got to become more efficient and pick his spots better but they're not you know these teams are not doormats anymore and so you know we got to see what happens with washington now that uh, Green is academically eligible, and that really hurt their team last year. And then does Oregon fall back not having Tinkle and Ethan Thompson is the only sort of guy there um, who's kind of had a big impact so to this point, right? Uh, they lost, you know, over the last two or three years, they lost some, some pretty good players relative to, to what has historically kind of been the case there. Um, so I think there's some questions about, about them. It, Oregon State, you guys know, they benefited from, you know, their coaches having their sons on the team be some of their best players. And, um, and so they're now probably in kind of a transitional phase. I'm interested to see kind of how they do. And Utah has uh, Timmy Allen decided to come back. I mean, he lost 30 pounds or so and was a much better player last year. But is he is – he, like Oregon State with Ethan Thompson or Cal with Matt Bradley, is Timmy Allen sort of a, a guy who isn't surrounded by enough uh, for Utah to be able to move up and, and uh, win seven, eight or more games maybe in the conference. Those are some of the things I'm looking to see and, and that we would have kind of been able to learn from uh, some of those early games that may not happen now. 
Yeah, because ASU, I was talking to Ama too, Chris, that they're going to play in Hawaii and San Diego State was going to be there. St. Mary's is going to be there. And I didn't, I don't, I didn't see, I don't think there was a bracket release, but you know, after last year's debacle against St. Mary's, I'm sure Bobby Hurley would have been licking his chops to get back, uh, get, get back on the court against them. But, to, and San Diego State was coming here too, who had such a phenomenal season. Last, the, well, not just last year was phenomenal season, but I mean, they've had solid seasons the last five, six years. Um, so yeah, we were, we were talking about that, but to our point then, how do you feel then? I mean, this is going to be probably because everybody, like I said, talking about, oh, their conference is the best. And oh, like you said, the pack, you know, maybe was sliding nationally. And I, I told Ahmad, I looked at out-of-conference schedules from the ACC and marked, matched them up against Pac-12 schedules. And I'm like, really? That team's better? And they're not even, they're barely at 500 in the conference play, but you're going to say it's better than a, a Pac-12 team. But that being said, though, that my point is, how does that affect like you're talking about a tournament because they'll figure out a way to bubble, do something. They're not going to have two seasons without a tournament, but how does that affect tournament seating now? Cause you're going to play the teams in your conference. And I'm guessing I, I said, I'm guessing there'd be a conference tournament. I haven't seen anything. I mean, it's a little early that there would or wouldn't be, but you're going to play conference games. Maybe ASU, I was going to say tidbit there. ASU might be able to get away with playing grand Canyon since they're both local and they had that set up anyway, but Either way, you're playing your conference, you have a conference tournament. What does the selection committee go off then? Well, yeah, it's so interesting because in recent years, they got rid of giving weight to the, your your late games. You're like, you know, they used to have years ago that your last 10, you know, mattered more. And then, you know, it was like how you did in your league maybe mattered more. It, they, you know, the, the recent uh, selection committee process gave equal weight to how you did in games in November, December to, to, you know, how you did in the conference. And what that meant was that if you're, if you're, if your conference did well in out of conference, it kept it, it buoyed it through basically the rest of the year to where even if the, even if the teams beat each other up in conference play, they still were always going to have like six, seven, eight, uh, you know, in the major conferences uh, teams that could, uh, make the, the NCAA tournament. And last year, the Pac-12 did a little bit better than it had previously in that respect, which is one of the reasons uh, that uh, that it, it did have a chance to have so many teams in the tournament. This year, I don't, it's hard to project like how not having those games would impact it because they lost so much talent and so many uh, of these teams have just a, a huge number of um you know, uh, Division One transfers, grad transfers, overseas players coming in. That it make it makes it a little bit tougher to sort of project if the Pac-12 is really hurt by not having as many marquee games in November, December. I think that probably you're right, Mike. Though what they'll end up doing is they'll they'll uh, they'll figure out ways to have sort of more local uh, uh, games played that you can you know access more easily. Maybe some tournaments with four to six teams coming in if they do play some precursor games to league play and, and give teams sort of a, you know, just get their feet wet before they actually get into the conference schedule. At least I hope that they do that in December. Um, Cause I think it's, it's pretty important, but I, I think it's going to be really difficult to sort of, I mean, you know, we're all sort of guessing and projecting so much out. And then with COVID, it's, there's so much more of that to do. And it makes it really difficult. Well, let me ask you this too, then, because when we're talking about, you know, projecting out, then for, um, I was going to say, I know for, for teams that, and again, smaller teams that, you know, now these smaller conference that just get the automatic bid from obviously winning their conference tournament. Do you feel though that it could actually it could actually help like another one, another team from maybe a, a mid-major smaller conference get into the tournament? No, I think it actually probably hurts them because for at-large uh, 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 opportunities from small to mid, they need to actually beat, uh, you know, good quality, you know, um, high majors in the non-conference before they even get to their conference play. Uh, if they don't do that, they, 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 there's less of a chance. So probably what will happen is if you, if you don't play uh, a robust uh, non-conference schedule, you're going to end up in March with fewer low to mid-majors 
most conferences will only have the automatic qualifiers. And then, um, you know, the, the, you'll get more teams probably from the ACC, the SEC, the Big 12, Big 10, Pac-12. Yeah, I got to figure it's going to bum uh, some of those teams out. What about from the contractual side of it, though? I mean, because I was thinking about that. I kind of mentioned it last week. I mean, I know these games, yes, it is a it is a, a pandemic, so it's something that they can't control. But from the contractual side, now will these games kick to – next season not like obviously this coming season but next season i mean could that be worked out yeah i i think that a lot of these contracts are just going to be agreed to be canceled and um and they'll they'll reformat however they're able to i mean everybody's just trying to figure it out as they go along right that's really what it is and i i think that we're going to learn so much by if these other three power five conferences are able to get football off the ground because ultimately, football is harder than basketball. You have a lot more players. You have a lot more moving pieces, support staff, personnel, all of these things, traveling to games, and much more involved, much more uh, able to have other people penetrate that. And so I think that what could happen is with the Pac-12 or other conferences is if uh, Big 12 or SEC play football successfully, in uh, you know late September to early October, we could see an acceleration and more uh, aggressive sort of approach to how basketball is handled subsequently. So I think sports fans they're going to be rooting for that, right? Like because you know, and and you know, not to go off on a little bit of a tangent, I personally believe I think that two two important things: the NCAA could have avoided a lot of these problems by giving more money as stipends to players several years ago, right? And, and, and making more concessions earlier on to head off some of these things at the pass. And then also uh, because the optics of, of forcing players or being perceived to be forcing players to play, even though they have the ability to opt out, retain their, their eligibility and all that stuff, there's still pressure associated with it, right? That's the fact uh, uh, of nature. Uh, but we all, I believe at the end of the day that players, they're less apt actually to get SARS-CoV-2 if they're taking part in every single day, the 20 hours mandatory practices, film, meetings, testing, playing games, then if that's all relaxed, and they're spending more time away from the program. Uh, and I think that that's been sort of validated by both the testing and the way that's gone with college football programs, and also what we've seen with the NBA bubble, with the NHL, et cetera, et cetera. But the optics of it and the, and the almost like perception of forced participation and athletes in college who are amateurs sort of playing for the enjoyment of people that they're while not being compensated for doing so it there's a pale that that's cast along with that that makes it difficult right so uh, these are sort of challenging kind of issues uh, Amai, how do you see that as a former athlete kind of all of these things kind of coming together i'm really not sure it's tough right yeah it's tough with just given that everything going on like it's a it's a tough dynamic to the situation i think everything can work out um but you're always gonna have you're always gonna have concerns. There's always gonna be thoughts on can this work out? Or is this the best way to go about it? You're gonna have naysayers. So it's just it's just a very difficult situation. Like I, it's almost hard for me to respond just because I can't relate in that sense. Like I can't relate to what's exactly going on. Players want to play, right? But at the end of the day, they also feel like their best interests need, need to be served by the coaches and administrators around them. And they need to be put in a really safe, healthy situation that they feel good about every day participating in. And I've said this too, Chris, I 100% agree with that. And Ahmad and I have talked about that and I agree. I mean, we've always, we've said from the beginning when we started this, you know, obviously in the height of COVID, we said as long as it's safe and responsible for whatever sport, whatever players to come back, the safety's there. If fans can't be there, We've both said, yeah, we want to be there, but do we want to wait till fans can go back to have sports again? Or do we just want to watch on TV? At least we can see something. So, I mean, as long as it's safe for the players and yeah, I think I've said it to you and I know I've said it to Ahmad before and all my friends when we just talk about 
college athletes and sports and like if the, yeah, the NCAA, I mean, it's like the cost of living. I, I related to this. I always tell people this little anecdote, Chris, you, you move into an apartment complex and you say you sign a year lease and you're paying, you know, say, you know, I'll go cheap. Say you're paying like, you know, 700 bucks a month. And then you sign another year lease, then all of a sudden it's $800 a month, but they've done nothing to improve the apartment. It's still the same place, but yet it goes up because why? Like it just goes up. But I say that the opposite of that, the stipends should go up every year. It should be percentage and it should go up every year because the thing is, and I've always said too, with having friends that have had, that have played college sports, now even like friends of mine whose kids are playing college sports and it's like, you, you want to up the stipends and give them more. It's a thing called title nine. You can't just give it to two sports. And you know that a lot knows that I know that we talk about, it, but when people say it, they just want to pay the big sports. It's like, if you try to just do that, you're going to be locked up in court for like 10 years. Yeah, and that's why, and that's why the, the current situation is unsustainable because you can't just pay coaches more and more and more and facilities more and more and more administrators more and more and more. Well, you got to be nonprofit. So the money's got to go somewhere, right? <laughs> well, see, I think at the end of the day, that's why this is, this is why the NCAA is in trouble. And you could see the power five consider breaking off because they don't have to give as much money to the NCAA for overseeing it. You uh, also, you get the ability to legislate yourself and you can expand the playoff take more of the TV money for yourselves. And that's a way that you can actually get more money, more, more, more of the revenue as a small shared percentage to all, all of the athletes. That's sort of my, I mean, it's a whole nother podcast really talk about that, but yeah. Well, see, you obviously know Ahmad and I, because we'll have a topic and we always hit a tangent at one of those topics. So this is our little tangent, but let me ask you this. If you look at, if you look at, you know, you're saying separate from the NCAA. I mean, to me, it hurts the smaller conferences because they're, they're the ones talking about money and not testing and they canceled before the bigger conferences did. But I don't know if it's about separating my pain more so restructuring because it's always like the, the butt of all jokes. The NCAA is just reactive, not proactive. Like they just react when they have to. They are. Yes. And, but eventually that, that doesn't work anymore. Right. No, absolutely. But that's what I'm saying. But if the conferences are doing it, I mean, aren't you trying to get away? I mean, we're, at, we're here out West, but like from the kind of the wild West things, because somebody say, Oh, well, no, this is okay here. I mean, I'm not saying the NCAA is always right. You know that. I think we've had these discussions, but I think as a governing body, plus for football, I mean, I know that the end the college tournaments where they get their money, but from the end the, from the college football playoff, they don't make anything off that. They don't make anything. No, no, but they make a lot of money uh, by from the NCAA tournament a billion dollar thing but then but then beyond that the way that they you know the way that they govern over all of the members and the conferences affects the policies and approach you could have a an overseeing body that's made up of people who do all the legislation like if you look at asu for example they have steve webb was he worked for the ncaa and now he's in charge of compliance at asu so you could have people that basically are able to come up with their own sort of agreed upon system and you can make a lot more money and you can distribute it. But what happened, what, here's the deal though, the NCAA, the colleges want the NCAA to be able to say, ah, oh, it's the NCAA's fault, that things are, and, and the NCAA wants to be able to say, well, we just do what our members. So it's a, you know, it's a game of being the blame game of, of, of back and forth, but something is eventually got to give. So. And I, yeah, I think it will. Um, but and, and, okay, so as we tie it back into basketball, I know we touched on recruiting, but how big is it? Because I know Ahmad and I mentioned it to Ahmad earlier about how, you know, when, when uh, like Florida, obviously Billy Donovan had a heck of a run, but Urban Meyer came in there. Football was always football, Florida. We know that. But then Billy Donovan comes in and all of a sudden, no, it's, it's a basketball school as well. I mean, ASU, again, never as you know, took off in basketball, had some solid recruits, but at other times it just wasn't able to keep the momentum going. And of course what Arizona did, but when you look at recruiting wise now, like, you know, USC being a football school, even UCLA when they're on their runs, but for ASU, I mean, you're covering the recruiting side on both, but I mean, for football with what Herm Edwards and that staff has done and what, I mean, Bobby Hurley's Bobby Hurley, people know he can coach, he played the game, but how big is that? 
for cross-recruiting? Because I've seen Antonio Pierce at games talking to basketball recruits, just smoozing them and stuff like that, as you have as well. But for all schools, I mean, how big is that when one program is that good where they're starting to get that momentum and yet the other coaches are there helping out and vice versa? Bobby Hurley, you know, has been around football. It's tough to like uh, quantify the value of exposure cross sports. I think at the end of the day, players are thinking about what is in their best economic interests and where they're going to get the most attention and they're going to be able to have their style of play be uh, re reflected on the court or on the field in a way that, that benefits them. Right. And all, all that stuff kind of together is kind of what matters. And so, you know, ASU, they have done a much better job with their fan support recently. Their attendance has been a lot higher. You look at uh, the Hurley factor. I think they get a lot more media attention as a result of that in part. And they play a style that is very guard driven, up and down, kind of flashy, score the ball, not going to be hard on you if you take shots that are kind of questionable. Players want that, right? They want the freedoms and they want the ability to play their game. So you put all those things together. I think those are much more important than like how football does, you know, but at the same time, if they, if, if kids recruits, they see a hype atmosphere at ASU football, they're like, Oh man, that's a good place. Like I'm watching this on ESPN. They're playing to a packed stadium in between those buttes there. And they got Herm Edwards and they got Bobby Hurley and you know, it, you know, like the, everything sort of comes together culturally for something I might like that's but that's more of an ancillary thing than a, a primary thing well mod played for uh, Craig Robinson so he, he got to be uh he got to hang out with the president a few times too yeah but you know a lot of a lot of people Ahmad, like a lot of players choose a coach that they know can relate to them at a certain level and also they, they, they the style of play really matters and it's it's like all of these things how I'm going to mesh and interact with you and what, and what your approach is to how you're going to coach me and all that stuff. And so like that, those are the most important things and how, and, and if playing for you is going to help me get to where I want to be in life in both basketball and then after basketball. 100%. Like, yes, life after basketball is, a, is an important thing to most people. Some people don't think that far ahead. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, they all, everybody thinks they're going to be a pro, right? Like at the end of the day. Yeah, everybody's going and thinking I'm going to the NBA. And, and that's the mindset you should have more or less, but you should also know in case this doesn't happen, what else I would like to do or, you know what I'm saying? So that, that's very important. Um, but as far as picking the coach, it's definitely that relationship. I do I think I can have a great relationship with this person. More important, most importantly, is he going to let me if – if, how is he going to develop me slash – is he gonna let me have this opportunity that I want? Because the most important thing is about being on the floor in there in the everyone's eyes. Is how is how can I do I have opportunity here to be on the floor? Do I believe you enough? As well as looking at the roster, can how often can I be on the floor? How much of an opportunity do I have to be a pro? That's the number one thing that's being done. It doesn't it doesn't there's no better than that. So it's just having a relationship with that and also deciding do I believe him slash what that roster looks like in order for me to do that. And then other questions that come, come into play. Well, and Chris, Ahmad made the great decision too, because Sean Miller was recruiting him when he was at Xavier. Then he went to Arizona. Sean Miller, as Ahmad told us, was very shocked that uh, he left the area and he really wanted Ahmad. So I said, look, I would have done this show with you anyway. You were an awesome point guard. But I said, you really made the right decision if I had to give you any advice, I think you made a great decision. Well, you guys just would have had more uh, banter uh, about the rivalry type stuff. So you never know. I mean, but, you know, it worked out well for, for Ahmad. So he played a lot and was successful there. No, definitely. I say I always wish I would have went to Arizona, but, like, you never know. Like, Sean Miller was recruiting point guards left and right. Um, if I go there, you know, I may not have had the same opportunity just based on – they're, those type of schools are, are stacking those positions. Well, positions in general, they're doing, they want the best of the best. And then they'll, do, you know, you'll just see who plays. But uh, Oregon State was an opportunity for me to go play. So that's, like I said, that's what most people are looking at. And he was the school's three-point leading shooter. 
for quite a while. Actually, it's funny, you know, talking about guards, and we talked about this in the beginning, Chris, but Gary Payton, who I looked it up, is still in the top ten in scoring and assists. That's why he's number one in, the, in all time. And a great defensive player, like probably, probably as good as anybody defensively. So, Oh, you know what I was going to say, too, schedule-wise, is because I know in last, like last December, and I looked this up, but the conference had agreed to play 20 games. So there was actually teams that were going to be playing each other during that out-of-conference schedule. How are you on that? Because they were, you're only basically not playing one team then. You're skipping like one team and or you're only playing somebody once, but they were going to start like, I mean, they were going to play have conference games in December, which I think is awesome because nobody else is doing it. I think, I think it is awesome. I, I personally like mitigating as much as you possibly can any advantages by not playing full round Robin two times. Cause if you don't, if you don't do that, invariably somebody's going to have an advantage within the schedule. So to eliminate that, I think is actually pretty cool. I think that there's actually too many non-conference games that are kind of irrelevant at the end of the day. It's like, Ahmad, like when you're at Oregon State, you're not getting up for like five, six of those teams that you play in November, December, and do you really actually need them? Like, you'd rather just like play more meaningful games more, more often than just teams that you know you're going to go out. It, there is value in that you're, you're kind of figuring yourself out and getting all on the same page and all that, for sure. But, but at the same time, do you need, like, really six weeks of that? Um, I, I don't know. I think it probably is too much. No, you don't really know. I mean, some games just help kind of pad your wins for Selection Sunday. Um, that's, that's the benefit of those. But uh, realistically, um, you need every game. Every game is important. But realistically, we're looking forward to those big games. So if you can get as many of those on the schedule and then hit conference play or something like that, that would be ideal. But some games you just got to – you go – You go. it's no disrespect to teams, but you're, you're going to go try to pad your numbers. And you're going to try to get a win for – to add your, just to your stock for Selection Sunday. It's just how the game goes. Um, and it also helps those other schools, you know, as I found out later, you know, financially, you know, and other stuff like that. Um, I, yeah, so it, it's it's uh it's very interesting, but we would like just to have those big games and then hit conference play and compete. Well, on that note, see, it goes by. I mean, we start talking about different things, and it just it goes by that fast, Chris. It's awesome. He is Chris Cartman, the publisher of Sun Devil Source. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Cartman. That's K A R P M A N. Just in case anybody can't spell, I'm a Sun Devil. I can do that for you. That being said, um, hey, Chris, man, seriously, thanks for uh, taking the time. Well, you know, we'll definitely, uh, as things get closer and rolling too, we'd love to have you back on. So if you can make the time, you'll, uh, you'll be part of our Believe in uh, Pac-12 Hoops. My, my pleasure, Mike. And Ahmad, wherever, wherever you're playing next, just take even more threes, dude. You make up for all like, the time that the coaches didn't let you shoot the 30-footers coming across half court when you were in Chicago growing up and wherever else that you knew you should have been able to take those shots. And now that now all the NBA metrics are like, yeah, man, you could do that. Right. Yeah. It is crazy. It's crazy. I played the wrong time, but uh, I'm not, I'm done playing. Um, Chris, I'm done playing at least. Well, I don't know. I'm pretty much done, but I, I run my own, I have a training business now. So I've been training kids all the way up to pros where a lot of my guys have signed and, men and women who are about to leave pretty soon. Awesome. And you're going to tell all them to fill, to fill it up the way that they can. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. It's, we're shooting a ton, of, a ton of bad shots. Put them up. <laughs> yeah, Damian Lillard. Yeah, everybody sees Damian Lillard now, and they think, oh, I can cross half court. He does it in rhythm. And Ahmad and I have talked about that, but that's awesome. Ahmad could do that, though. I'm telling you. No, that, that, that's my type of game, no doubt about it. I can still shoot it with the best of them. Don't get me wrong. So, <laughs> Right on, man. All right, guys. Well, have a good night. That's why I looked up his highlights. But, yes, thank you so much, Chris. We are going to get out of here, though. Everyone, again, get your – you can subscribe. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Again, believe in Pac-12 basketball. You want to hit a mod up on Twitter. It's at A Starks 3 I'm at Diablos00. Again, 
at Chris Cartman on Twitter. Everything Sun Devils, but recruiting conference-wise, you can see why we have him on. He makes me smarter, at least, and I appreciate that. So we're going to get out of here. Everybody have a great week. Stay safe, and we will see you next week here on Believe in Pac-12 Basketball. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.